0: Hello, Dark Zone listeners. This is Brian Gatons. You're probably expecting an episode of The Dark Zone, number 91, that is. But instead, you're getting episode one of The Checkpoint, a new podcast created with The Dark Zone and the United States Adventure Racing Association. We have regional race director interviews by Brent Friedland, and I interview Karen Delaney, a licensed physical therapist who breaks down all the things we have to work on to keep well breaking down. So sit back and relax and enjoy this sneak peek of The Checkpoint. And in the show notes, you could follow a link and subscribe. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being a listener. And enjoy The Checkpoint. Oh, it's a checkpoint. Right there's the checkpoint. Checkpoint. You better figure something out. I think we made a mistake at the last checkpoint. We're
1: coming to the checkpoint, sir.
0: Check. Over. Welcome to The Checkpoint, a new podcast presented by the United States Adventure Racing Association with the assistance of the Dark Zone at Adventure Racing Podcast. This is your host for today, Brian Gatons from the Dark Zone. Usually, Brent Friedland of USARA would be hosting the podcast, but instead he is overseas having the trip of a lifetime with his family, and I'm stepping in for him. Today we bring to you three segments. The first is Kevin Edwards of the Berryman Adventure Race, talking about his race experience as well as being a race director. Our second segment is Brian Holzhausen from Dino Racing, who too will be sharing news of his race. And lastly, we have Dr. Karen Delaney, who knows all things about the human body, and would be more than happy to speak to you about her experience as a physical therapist. Thanks for being here. Thank you for racing. On behalf of USARA, we are delighted that you've decided to stop by the checkpoint.
2: One of the goals with the Checkpoint is to highlight USARA's regional qualifier racers and their race directors through brief conversations with the qualifier directors. We're kicking things off this month with what I believe are two of the longest running races in the USARA series. First off, I'm excited to welcome Kevin Edwards from RALA Multisport to the pod. Kevin, I, I believe that the Berryman Adventure has been around longer than most races. Can you Tell us a little bit about yourself, your organization, and your experience in the sport. Absolutely. Thanks, Brent. Uh, Yeah, I uh,
3: have been adventure racing since 2008, and the club, the Rolla Multisport Club, has been around since 1981, actually, and it's gone through a lot of iterations. But we didn't own the Berryman Adventure until 2016, but the race itself has been around since 2001, so we're the fourth owners of the race and so we've had many teams from our club participate in the race and when one of the owners decided that they needed to retire we contacted them and picked it up and we've done 6 of them now and this in 2024 will be our 7th Barryman adventure.
2: So that's interesting. I I had a feeling there had been some transition having been in the sport for quite a while myself. Um can you actually share a little bit, is there, is there anything that you all, uh, as RALA, have done differently than past race directors for the Berrymen? Um, you know, and are there things that you guys have consciously tried to uh, continue from the past race directors?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. We try very hard to continue the, the brand and the tradition of the Berrymen Adventure as being a very intense, uh, tough course moving the course around so that every year we're on fresh territory. That's important to us as well. And I I think we've succeeded in that. I believe that we uh, have done a good job of carrying on, on that tradition. Our catchphrase is classic adventure racing in the Ozarks since 2001. We are the original race in the Ozarks. I know there's the Ozark expedition out there now, and that's fantastic. We feel like we helped inspire it. I hope we did. But uh,
2: that's, that's what we care about. I think that catchphrase really catches it all. I've heard amazing things about the Ozarks in general as a place to race um, going back years and years. So I know there's a rich tradition of the sport in that area. Can you uh, maybe share a little bit with listeners uh, about what they could expect from the race? Maybe a, a little bit about how long the race is, kind of what your style is in terms of course format. Um, Are there any disciplines that you uh, especially like to highlight or are highlighting in this year's edition?
3: Yes, I'd I'd like to talk a little bit about the Ozark terrain, because that's really what we're here to highlight. Um, I personally grew up in the woods, and I'm sitting here in the woods now, because after uh, being out in the the world a bit, we moved our family back here and built a house in the woods in the Ozarks, and I just love this part of the country. So that's really what we're wanting to show off. And so you see it reflected in, in, in the race. Now the Berryman has varied in length over the years. It's been as long as 36 hours. There's always been a shorter option. Currently ours is 20 hours for the long course, eight hours for the short course. And then we have a beginner's course that's six hours and it's, it's made distinctly for, uh, for beginners. What we wanna emphasize is, is this amazing countryside uh, the the ozarks is a is a plateau in the middle of the great plains that's split between arkansas northern arkansas and southern missouri so it's a vast area that plateau's been cut up over hundreds of thousands of years by rivers and lakes both above ground below ground so there's caves there's springs and there is very challenging rocky terrain and we will Give every racer that comes out a taste of all of that.
2: Yeah, it sounds amazing. Like a really diverse, uh, diverse wilderness to to play around in for 20, 24 hours or so. Um, you know, I think you mentioned this is the the sixth or seventh edition of the race under your banner. Um, is there anything that you are particularly excited about with this year's course?
3: Yeah, I, I'm excited about a couple of things about it. I, I don't want to say though, because I don't want to give away too much. I, yeah. I will say though that uh, racers are going to get wet this year, <laughs> and and they'll probably be uh, uh, be wet in the dark. I'll say that okay. much. And I I think that uh, the 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 biking is always challenging, but this year's no exception there. And yeah, it's it's our our courses are are never very linear. This course
2: is probably
3: a little more linear than we usually do, hmm. but it's still going to be uh, loaded with decisions to make.
2: When you say it's not uh, particularly linear, do you guys do like a mix of kind of mandatory and optional checkpoints that kind of adds more root choice in there and strategy for different levels of teams?
3: Well, our philosophy is we we will make sure there are plenty of flags out there. And by that, what I mean is that most years, even the elite teams, do not clear the course. And, and that's no reflection on them. We do that on purpose. we like to see all the racers come in about the same time near the end. And the winners are almost always determined by the number of checkpoints. So uh, that's, and, and we really believe in, in making teams think and make decisions. So uh, our ideal course would be one that's, it's very rogany. You're going to be out there deciding which flags to get, not, how to get all the flags and uh, many options as as to what order you do things in i almost never have mandatory flags in, in these races and i know i've succeeded when after the race you see all the especially the the top teams sitting around the fire um talking about the decisions they made and the strategies they've used and and just Um, sharing a lot because they all had to uh, make a lot of choices.
2: You know, for newer uh, people to the sport of adventure racing, when we use the term road gaining, uh, Kevin, I think you explained it pretty clearly, but just to reiterate, you know, this usually means that there's, um, you know, a a certain number of checkpoints and you really can go get as many or as few of them as you want to. And as, you know, your training and navigation experience allows you to, which, you know, my, one of my final questions is going to be, um, or would have been, um, you know, what would you say to beginners considering signing up for a, a relatively long race? and it sounds like your course design is is very welcoming to all levels. would you uh, would you agree with that? Yes, especially
3: since we do offer the three different links. Right. Uh, the, the eight hour length it will be j- every bit as intense as the twenty hour, but just shorter but the six hour will not be as intense. So if you wanna taste for the support, you can can do that six hour race. We give you six hours to do it. That one, if you have much experience at all, you will clear it. It stays all pretty much around uh, the headquarters. Uh, gives you a lot of choices as to what directions you want to go. You go out and bike a little bit, go out and and do some land navigation, uh, but you're not going to be far from home. You're not going to get lost doing this, but you're going to get a
2: feel for what it's like. Uh, one final question, and uh, you know, I think you've highlighted that there's some uh, you know technical biking and plenty of navigation. But are there any other tips you would give potential racers? Um, you know, things that you think. Uh, people should focus on with their training or preparation to get ready for an event like yours?
3: Yeah, one thing I'd say is that because the 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 area of the state that we're in this year, there won't be much single track. So I try to compensate, maybe even overcompensate for that by, by putting some really challenging roads in there. The state of Missouri opened up logging roads to mountain bikes uh, about a year and a half ago which has really allowed us to put some ugly, ugly roads into the race. So I guess one piece would be if you think you're going to come out here and do this on anything other than a mountain bike, there's probably going to be sections of the course that you're going to be walking your bike. So Mm -hmm. that's one little nugget. Uh, The the other thing I'd say is that the, the rivers out here are very windy. Every corner and turn looks the same when you're on the river. Pay attention to where you are. Don't lose track. Uh, because that can get you uh, uh, messed up uh, pretty badly too. And there will be lots of hills and lots of rocks. So when you're training, get out there and get used to going up and down the sides of some inclines.
2: Great. Well, this sounds amazing. Um, I uh, have never been able to get down to the Berryman uh, uh, under Rolla or before that, but um, I've heard amazing things about it. And uh, you are definitely wetting my appetite for finding a way to get down to Missouri sometime soon. So thank you, Kevin, for joining us on The Checkpoint, and uh, good luck with all of your final preparation for the race. Thank you, Brent.
0: Thank you, Kevin, for that informative piece, and thank you, Brent, for your interviewing. Moving on to our second segment, we join Brian Holzhausen from Dino Racing. Once again, Brent, take it away.
2: For our second race director profile this week, I'm excited to speak to Brian Holzhausen, the longtime race director for Dino Racing. Uh, Brian also has had the honor of directing the United States Adventure Racing Association National Championship two times. Um, they were both tremendous races, and I'm sure his regional qualifier, uh, the 18 hour mission adventure race, will be a good one. Um, Brian, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Brent. Um, and so as usual, I just want to start off by asking you to introduce yourself, um, maybe say a little bit about your experience as a race director and as a racer, if you'd like, and also share a little bit about your, um, your race and Dino racing.
4: Thanks, Brent. Uh, Brian Holshausen, I'm the owner and director of Dino, which is an acronym for Do Indiana Off-Road. And in addition to adventure racing, we also produce mountain biking and trail running. Those are our two main events that we produce. And we have uh, two triathlons each year as well. And personally, I am a multi-sport athlete. In addition to doing adventure races, I do mountain biking, trail running, regular triathlons, off-road triathlons, you name it, I'll do it. When I do adventure race, I race with my team, DinoSeries.com, and I've done about six USARA national championships myself over the past 20 years, and I've actually directed three of the national championships. The first one was in Western Maryland, and then we've had two in Indiana since then. So it's been three, and I've enjoyed working with USARA over the years in a variety of ways and directing nationals, racing nationals, and being a part of it.
2: My apologies on that. Um, uh, so I remember vividly in at least one of the races you directed some really amazing mountain biking. Um, I'm -hmm. wondering if you can share a little bit about your kind of race directing philosophy, you know, are there any specific, um, disciplines or any specific challenges you like to incorporate in your race or do you kind of mix it up race to race?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. Of course, I love mountain biking myself. I love it because it's a key part of our business. So anytime I can put in good mountain biking into an adventure race, I do it. That's not always feasible. You can't always find a place with great mountain biking, but when we do, we try to put it in there. But in general, the mission is unique. Uh, Some would say quirky in our segment format where you don't really know what you're going to be doing next until you start the next segment of the race a little different than nationals that I've directed because I've been kind of guided to do it in a little more traditional way. But the mission format, you have to get all the checkpoints in that segment before you move on to the next segment or you'll get a penalty point for skipping one. And the reason for that is it helps our lead teams to truly be in the lead out front by themselves and not have. Uh, teams that have leapfrogged up there along with them. So that's kind of the theory there. It also helps a lot for planning our TAs and activities. So we know that teams are on track for a certain time and not going to jump ahead by several hours for the mission. Most years our winning time is close to the 18 hour cutoff. And there's usually only a couple of teams that clear the course in the mission usually. So it does make an exciting and very social finish line atmosphere. Everybody has finished recently and they're hanging around having a dinner as everybody else finishes. And then we do the awards right afterwards. So a lot of people together at the midnight finish. As far as aspects of the race, uh, we do try to reward good navigators and creative thinking. I always try to make it a, a thinking game and not just a go, go, go physical game during the mission adventure race. So those are some of the things that I think are special about the mission.
2: Yeah, that, that's great. And that's certainly, you know, the, the two races I've done of yours, that, that rings true. Out of curiosity, to go back to the third one, did you actually did you direct um, one of the very early USAra national championships in Indiana?
4: Is that no? The, that was a different director, Jerry Lyons, okay. I believe, was in charge of that one. A friend of mine, but I I did not even participate in that one. That was before I was really aware of USAra. I think that was very early in the USAra history before no. my time. Yeah, me, me as well. Yeah,
2: um, great. W- what about um, you know? I, Totally recognize you may not be able to answer this question. Um, Is there anything specific to this year's course that you are particularly excited about? A checkpoint, a stage, a special challenge, anything that you're willing to share?
4: Sure. Well, the course, we're still doing some final preparation and getting some things nailed down on the course. So there's a few things I can't really say whether we're going to be able to do or not, but... I definitely mountain biking is an element that I'm excited about this year. I'm also excited that we're looking to have some genuine orienteering maps. So not just the typical 1 to 24, 1 to 25,000 map. We're going to have some high detail o-, o maps and O sections on the course. So I like when we can throw that kind of thing into the race. Great.
2: And uh, my last question for you is um, beginners, you know, regional qualifiers, obviously there's a lot of focus on the fact that they are uh, races for people trying to qualify for nationals but of course as a race director myself you know even at regionals you're usually going to find a large number of, of newer racers or you know maybe people that have done sprint races but not not one as long as as an 18 hour race um what do you do to make the race more accessible for those that maybe are a little unsure about jumping into the deep end here um, and do you have any um, advice whether it's for newer racers or you know older racers any advice for things you think people should be doing to prepare for the mission.
4: Yeah, good question. Of course, we do have our four-hour beginner race, which we really, truly tailor to beginners, and we will help people along. We'll give them a lot more advice on course and help and tips than we do during the 18-hour, because most of the 18-hour participants do have a little bit of experience usually. But that said, the 18-hour race is fairly beginner-friendly in most cases for the mission because of the layout with segments. It's typically sort of a loopy type of event most times once in a while we'll be able to throw a long point to point type of section in but it does have some loops so what that means is that a team can go through the loop and if they just can't continue they'll they'll be able to finish and be an official finisher not have to be Driven in a truck off the course, which is no fun for anybody, it's usually manageable that they can get back to the TA start finish and call it officially finished. So, as I mentioned, most teams don't actually clear the course, but they're still finishers. It's all the score that you get on the course. And I try to mix this segments up. So that they'll have multiple paddle sections, multiple bike sections, multiple trek sections. So that even if a team is moving at one third of the speed of the leaders, they still get to experience the entire spectrum of activities during the race. But as long as they go out and enjoy, hit a few checkpoints, and then they finish, uh, they're they're official finishers, and they can feel good about that. Uh, as far as advice for this year's race, as I mentioned, we do have some real mountain biking in there. So make sure that your technical mountains, mountain bike skills aren't too rusty for this year's mission. Uh, it should not be the first time you get on your mountain bike for the season. And uh, you might want to go to a local orienteering club meet this spring and do a little practice on some good OMAPs. Make sure you understand how those work because they're different than an adventure race map. Make sure you understand that. That'll be helpful. So I'd say those are two things to help out with this year's race. Great.
2: Well, thank you for your time, Brian. And, uh, you know, also a special shout out. uh, Brian uh, has served on the board, the advisory board for USRA for a long time. Uh, you know, we worked together for, uh, I don't know, 10 years or so, maybe in different capacities. But, you know, you you definitely put in some uh, great time and we really uh, appreciate all you've done for USARA, um, both as a race director, as a board member and just as a, a
4: member of the community. Awesome. Thank you, Brent. It's great talking with you today. Thanks. You too.
0: Thank you to Brent and Brian for that second segment. The first two segments highlighted our race directors in our regional series. Be sure to check them out. All of their links will be in the show notes. Our third and final segment is a longer piece where Dr. Karen Delaney, physical therapist extraordinaire, is interviewed about the human body, adventure racing, how to ramp up your training, how to take care of yourself, how to eat, how to sleep, feet. This is a holistic conversation about all parts of adventure racing. Karen is a long distance racer herself and she is a fantastic interview. Thank you, Karen, for stopping by The Checkpoint and everyone, enjoy the interview. So this is Brian as a, a, a name you usually hear associated with the Dark Zone Adventure Racing Podcast, but I'm stepping into a new role today uh, in support of race, The Checkpoint. Uh, it's a new initiative by the United States Adventure Racing Association, usually hosted by Brent Friedland. He's out doing his travel thing. We think he's in Bangkok, Thailand right now. And so I have the opportunity today, I have the, the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Karen Delaney. Uh, for the past 17 years. Karen, who has her doctorate in physical therapy, has worked extensively with a wide variety of endurance athletes in her professional life. And in her personal life, she's an adventure racer herself. And so when we were kicking around people to talk to and topics to talk about in the in the checkpoint planning room, it was very, very clear that Karen would be a wonderful, wonderful guest to bring on the show. Uh, In today's episode, we're going to talk a lot about endurance athletes, uh, mistakes that athletes make, how can they get ready for their bodies for the offseason, things like that. And As as someone who has a huge wealth of knowledge, Karen will share a lot of her own wisdom along the way, both from her professional experience as well as what she's seen herself as an adventure racer. So, Karen, welcome to The Checkpoint. Thanks for being here today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on this for the first, especially for the first episode.
0: First episode, right? We're we're getting this off the ground. You know, the uh, USARA uh, under the leadership of Mike Garrison is working really hard to grow people into the sport. You know, we we think we have a bit of a moment coming with the Arthur the King movie and and the sport is the regional series and uh, USARA doing so well and the world's and Ecuador's hosting this year. And it's great stuff. It's great stuff. You know... uh, The first question I want to lead off with this is that as someone who lives in this Venn diagram of two worlds, that professionally you work with athletes who who injure themselves and who need to get better, and then you yourself as an endurance athlete, as you think about those two worlds kind of coming together, what advice would you offer to the aspiring adventure racer when it comes to ramping up their training to get involved in, in longer sports stuff?
1: Yeah, I think that the most important thing and the most common mistake that I see that leads to injuries is just ramping up too quickly, um, particularly as we get older. Um, I think maybe it was you or maybe it was Mark Latanzi did a poll of the ages of the athletes at nationals last mm-hmm. year. And I want to say it was like the early 40s, like 42 or 43 was the average age of the competitive athlete. And um, just knowing that as we get older, there are changes in our bodies and we need a little bit more of that gradual ramp up and gradual increase in intensity. Um, I think with adventure racing, because it's often performed at a lower intensity than, say, if you were to go out to an Ironman race or a road marathon where it's more intensity and speed as a goal versus adventure racing has more of the logistics of the gear the strategy components and just being that often it's 24 to 30 hours and it's a longer event um, because you're not performing at that that intensity and speed i think people tend to think well i can just jump into it Um, but even at the slower speeds preparing the body and a gradual increase in mileage whether it's on the bike paddling um, or on foot is really important to prevent injuries.
0: And so, I think if I hear you correctly. What you're saying is that because on its face, adventure racing lacks like, explosive movement, right? We're not running at full sprints. We're not really going to anaerobic. A large part of our our racing is designed to be it's it's mental in many ways, right? It's the it's the the map reading. It's also somewhat emotional. It's working with your team, but then the physical. People fall into the trap of thinking that because they're not running as hard as they have to run, or they're not living in zone five, that they kind of they, they, they kind of let their guard down a little bit when it comes to that. And as a result, they jump into things too quickly.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably a common mistake that adventure racers could fall into. I also see it a lot with ultra runners, um, ultra marathoners, um, a kind of similar idea that, you know, oh, well, I, I was running slowly and I only did 20 miles, you know, and, and usually that's what kind of can lead to these injuries that kind of creep up onto us. And usually we see it about two to three weeks after uh, error in our training programs. So it's often hard to associate with that ramp up. It's like, well, I've I've been doing the same thing for two or three weeks. But then when you look back and you see that that sudden spike in training, um, that could be a big cause of injury.
0: So it takes that long for an injury to catch up with you. You're talking 14 to 21 days. That's why usually we associate injury with like, oh, I hurt myself today. But you're saying that actually started much earlier in the training cycle.
1: Oftentimes, yeah. Um, And it could be due to uh, numerous reasons. So um, in particular, like any kind of bone stress reaction injury can take a little bit of time to ramp up to. And it can also be based on our energy availability and how well we're refueling and um, kind of Helping our bodies build back up after we're breaking them down.
0: Well, I think that's a, a really good thing to talk about. Is the idea of there's there's the training itself for adventure racing and getting ready for the, the 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 long form stuff and being able to cycle into into paddle shoulders hips knees and the cardio part of it too. But I also think the, the the nutritional side of it plays a role also. And what do you find in your own experience as well as what you've learned about nutrition wise? How does what we put into our bodies nutritionally impact? Our cramping our muscles our like is there a connection there between those two things
1: there absolutely is um I'm certainly not a nutritionalist um, by the like our state license we're technically not allowed to give advice on nutrition so it's something that I've looked into more personally than professionally in terms of wanting to become the best athlete that I can and I I personally think that a lot of my own racing errors are most made from the fueling perspective. Um, it's really hard to kind of get yourself to eat as much as you really need to be consuming an hour, particularly, um, you know, when you're doing a 24 or 30 hour race to kind of keep yourself fueling and kind of keep your GI system under control. But I certainly think that after working out is a great opportunity for refueling, uh, particularly with protein. And we see that, again, with people as we're getting older, that the, the need for an intake of increased protein after exercise to help rebuild our muscles um, that have just been broken down can be beneficial.
0: Fully recognizing that you're speaking from a personal experience there and not professionally, right? And it's worth pointing out to the listeners out there that none of this constitutes a replacement for medical advice, right? If you have thoughts about all this, go talk to a medical professional, talk to a doctor. The system's coming together right? Muscular systems, bone systems, nutritional, cardio, all that coming together. When those things, when they break down, what usually goes first? What is the biggest mistake that that an aspiring adventure racer makes when it comes to ramping up, obviously, is, a, is an early indicator right? going too hard, too soon, too fast. What would you say falls in behind that?
1: Um, I think in general, the muscular skeletal system is probably the most fragile. So, A lot of times it's kind of tendon issues, you know, overuse where we get these tendinitis or tendinosis when it becomes a prolonged inflammation. You know, we get a lot of nagging foot pain, plantar fasciitis, knee injuries, some um, intermittent knee pain, whether it's with activity or twisting or turning. And oftentimes those could be meniscus tears that are just kind of degenerative wear and tear over the years um, that sometimes a cartilage can catch as you're moving and cause further irritation. And sometimes there's just agitated and inflamed tissue. You know, we can all have a little bit of structural differences that are underlying in our systems. You know, all of us have some kind of form of wear and tear over the years. And a lot of times if we did imaging and found those, people can have something and be totally asymptomatic. Right. So you might have arthritic changes in your knees, but you might not have any pain associated with that. Um, so sometimes it's that we agitate a tendon or a tissue in overtraining or as a result of maybe we we do a race that has a lot more downhill than we've trained for and something gets agitated and then stays inflamed for a little bit. And often once that pain doesn't go away, that's what leads us to going to the doctors and getting imaging and then we can find these underlying issues that we already had. So it's not necessarily that that underlying issue is a, the current problem um, and it's getting that inflammation under control
0: as I think about my own personal experience too, when I go through here, I always find that the following a bigger race, you know, and, and bigger is all by perspective, that the the days after the race are just so there, you're, you, you, feel, you feel somewhat bloated. You have a, your body's working through the salt, the caffeine, the fatigue. In terms of recovery time, you know, time takes time, right? And if you want to get three days healthier, you have to get three days older. And I understand all of that. Following an event, protein is an important part to do. What about cold versus hot? What about versus ice baths versus hot showers, massages versus stretching? Like in your experience, what usually works better to get us all back to normal and back to work on a Monday morning when we're not limping around the office?
1: Yeah, that's challenging. I think there's a lot of different research out there that says a lot of things. You know, um, for a while the ice baths were really in favor. Now you're hearing heat's really good for you. So um, I do think there's different research that kind of reflects that all of these things can be beneficial to us. And I think the most important thing is individually finding out what works best for you. So if you're somebody who tends to have some kind of underlying inflammatory disease, like any kind of rheumatoid or um, autoimmune disorder, where you tend to have more issues of inflammation, you might be someone who responds a little bit better to that ice baths. Um, Versus if you're someone who just gets really tight, then sometimes that heat can help relax the muscles. So I think there is a little bit of variability in through there. I do think that consistently after exercise, they're finding um, that not being totally static and uh, sedentary is helpful. So some kind of form of light motion. So, you know, maybe it's not going for runs for that week, but maybe you're going out there for a little bit of walking and doing some of those dynamic stretching exercises and doing some light foam rolling Um, And self massage techniques. I think there's a little bit of individuality within that. um, But finding some kind of routine that you're continuing to move, that you're giving some kind of light input, whether it's light stretching, dynamic mobility, light massage or light foam rolling. And I think as athletes who kind of enjoy to suffer, I mean, our sports a little bit about that type two fun. Um, It's also remembering that when we're doing these things, that when you're foam rolling, it's not about going as hard as you can, as often as you can. You know, a light amount of stimulus is actually just as beneficial as kind of drilling yourself with it. So, you, you know, you should be doing these things to tolerance and it shouldn't be an all out kind of mechanism in terms of restoration.
0: So you make an interesting point, right? And for the adventurers that are listening to this podcast, we in general have a certain personality profile where we don't, we don't necessarily lives lives that are absent of pain, and so our connection to suffering and our connection to exertion is, is is an interesting dynamic to sort of suss out, right? And I think that we we fall on the uh, on a spectrum end, if you will, of how we view those things. And here's why I bring that up: Does our ability to suffer and our our lack of avoidance mm-hmm. of suffering hinder our recovery, or does it hurt? Does it help our recovery? Like, are we just okay just being sore? And we don't really take any action to make ourselves not sore. Like, this is what it is. You're going to limp around for a few days. And therefore, are you suggesting, recommending, once again, not medical advice, that you have to avoid the desire to sort of sit there and suffer on your couch. And instead, you have to get moving. You have to do something to aid in your own recovery.
1: I think that this goes a little bit of both ways on that. Um, So I definitely think that when I'm working with athletes that are rehabilitating specifically um, after more major surgeries, they tend to do really well because they're used to understanding what a little bit of discomfort is or, you know, knowing that sometimes there's going to be a little bit of pain when you're in the rehabilitation process. And so if it's immediate kind of like a post-operative acute Surgery, um, and we're just beginning the phases of rehabilitation. That sort of sharp pain, I always don't want people to push into. But if it's like that stretching pain, that muscle soreness, like athletes get that, right? Like they can come to a session, they can work hard and say, Hey, my muscles are sore, and understand that that's very different kind of feeling than damaging something. Whereas I have some patients that I've worked with that they do a hard workout, things get sore, and they think that something has really gone wrong because they don't understand what it feels like to be sore. So in that aspect, I think that um, athletes are really good in the rehabilitation aspect of, um, you know, of dealing with injuries. I do think that also, as athletes, we do expect some soreness, but it's understanding what kind of soreness is okay, and what kind is not. And I think part of it is like, yeah, we're used to having tired legs, or our muscles are sore. And that's, part of being an athlete, but also knowing like, hey, my legs have been consistently sore. You know, I added in some strength training and now when I go to run, I'm feeling a lot more fatigue, you know, sometimes being able to read into those cues and understand when you're doing too much and exerting yourself, you know, too much and adding too much into the the fire there that you need to back off a little. And I think that's sometimes harder to to discern when you're used to having pain. Yeah, I I see the people who get injuries and because they're used to having some sort of pain, don't deal with them because they're used to like, oh, running should hurt or, yeah, you know, I I biked a lot this week. I should be in pain. Um, And so those kind of people tend to not deal with injuries. And then, you know, several months go by and all of a sudden something that might have been able to clear up pretty quickly if they had sought treatment for it um, has now kind of progressed. And it's more of a diffuse pain. It's spread to a couple of different joints. And, you know, then it's going to take longer for that to clear up. So I think a little bit of each of those and all aspects is like, yeah, in some aspects, being an athlete, and being used to pain can be helpful. But I think also sometimes it can cause us to push through things that maybe we should get adjusted a little bit quicker.
0: And that's a human nature thing, right? What is what is one of our greatest strengths? Can be also one of our greatest liabilities yeah. and our ability to sort of push through that pain, through the suffering, through the agony of it. That comes back to bite us because in reality, we should have said to ourselves, this is not something that I should toughen out. I shouldn't just sort of grit my teeth here, but I should go for something. And if I hear you correctly is, and everybody is an individual, so it's hard to figure it out for, there are no hard and fast rules here, right? Important thing to point out, you have to know your own body and you have to know, like, this is normal post-race kind of, I'm, I'm a little creaky, I'm a little sore versus I've never experienced this before, and this is a thing, and I have to do something about it. And what's interesting is, is that you only begin to know that when you begin to bump up against legitimate soreness. Yeah. Right. I, I always think too, and 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 I and you're the person with a doctor, right? It's the doctor. So feel free to smack me down if I say this here. I've always found my experience has been that working with people who are newer to endurance sports is that they are they are too quick to think that normal soreness is injury. And as a result, they kind of they they walk away from the sport pretty quickly because they're not used to being in any sort of pain, any sort of soreness. And as a result, they never give themselves a chance to get on the other side of that and enjoy the benefits of increased fitness, increased ability, the ability to be a different person.
1: Yeah. And that's where that doing too much too quickly can really come into play. You know, if you do too much too quickly and you get really sore from it. Yeah. You're not going to want to do anything because your legs are super tired. They hurt. Um, versus if you can kind of gradually ease into it and keep ramping up what you're doing by gradual increases, then I think you're less likely to kind of fall into that like all or none category of, well, I tried this and now I can't do it because it was just awful and I felt terrible um, versus that gradual increase kind of is like, okay, this is bearable um, and I can I can do a little bit more next time.
0: Yeah. So I think I just- that's
1: what that can come into play.
0: I used to go to a local gym um, and it was, it was not CrossFit. I've never, I've never done CrossFit to all the CrossFit heads out there, more power to you, but this was a high intensity kind of a place, right? And it was 45 minutes of, and the warm up was five minutes. And then you were into it. And from time to time, new people would, would come for their first class. And one thing that the instructor always said at the end of the class, and he was great. He would say to that new person, you feel pretty good. Now you're going to feel sore tomorrow and you're going to feel terrible the day after it's going to go away give and then you would and it would be sort of people that would come back on day three day four but you had to get through that initial your body and then over time our bodies develop tolerance they develop endurance and that stops being such a big deal but i remember that was a specific piece of advice that he would give to everybody who passed through the class
1: yeah that's great and like and again to what you asked earlier some of those things that you can do again increase your protein intake maybe take that hot bath that night with you know something like epsom salts or something that's relaxing to your muscles hydrate well, make sure that you're drinking lots of water, do that dynamic stretching, all that can kind of help you get over that little bit of soreness a little bit quicker to get you back out there.
0: I also think to a piece of advice that I would give to the newer racer who's, who's jumping into the sport people, when people get a taste of adventure racing, they just love it. Right. And they can't race enough. And they'll, they'll jump up quickly from a six hour race to 12 to a 24 hour race recommendation that I would make. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on it. To avoid that injury potential going from 6 to 12 to 24, maybe going even a 30-hour race, they probably want to focus on going more steady during those races. And they might give up some places, might give up some checkpoints, but they have a chance of finishing that race feeling good enough about themselves that they're not destroyed, and therefore they're able to come back the next time. Would that advice make sense to you?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I I think it depends on your history as an athlete, you know, are you talking about someone who's already been doing Ironman triathlons and has a history of doing a lot of endurance and speed? I think that's going to be a little bit different than your person who has maybe done a sprint triathlon and then wanted to transition to adventure racing. Likewise, if you're somebody who's done a lot of um, maybe ultra marathons or longer foot races, and then you're transitioning, I think it really is going to depend on your athletic backgrounds um, and how much, time on your feet, time in the saddle that you've previously had. Um, and I do think, you know, one of the things, and I am totally guilty of this myself, you know, when it comes to the paddling portion of races, I think it's kind of often dismissed in terms of the training. It's often harder to have the accessibility to training. You know, if you, if you don't have a indoor ergometer or simulated kayak paddling set up at your house, you know, to get to the water and to paddle year round is a little bit harder. And I think that's one of the elements that we are like, oh, I can, I can muck through this. You know, I'm strong. I'm an athlete. It's it's only four hours in the boat, but I think that's when you got to get to see a lot of, you know, maybe elbow tendonitis, um, issues with the shoulders and that's where that gradual ramp up can be beneficial. You
0: know, as, as a lead into that, and I, I you know, very few, First of all, if they made an affordable paddle ergometer, we'd all buy them, right? We could use them and you could convert a an erg C2, but that's like all sorts of mechanical stuff that's beyond a lot of us. The role of strength training and staying healthy for the, for the, for the, and let's come back to the older athlete a little bit. What, what is the, what is the physiological impact of consistent state uh, strength training as you get older?
1: Yeah. Well, in general, we start to lose muscle mass. So pretty much every decade after like mid 30s, so starting in our 40s, we're starting to lose muscle mass. And it's something that if you don't change strength training to to keep up your muscle mass, it's going to to deteriorate, and you're going to lose muscle mass a lot quicker. Um, so the best thing that we can do to slow that is to keep up with a consistent strength training program. Um, so I think absolutely, like a twice a week strength training program is pretty important to all athletes, um, particularly like you said, people in their forties and over. Um, Another thing that we lose as we get older is our um, power, our ability to to be explosive. And I think that that in adventure racing can come into play when we're jumping over a creek um, or if we have to quickly lift up something and carry it or kind of force our bikes over our head as we're bike whacking up a hill. Um, So I think that doing that strength training and doing a little bit of light power in that can be beneficial for those things.
0: What would you think about, like, what are some of the worst things that people can do? You know, we've mentioned the idea of nutrition, the idea of going too fast, too quickly. If you're in an adventure race and you're looking around and you're seeing some individuals do certain things and you kind of go, Ooh, that's going to be kind of tough on them down the road. What what would you say someone should absolutely have to avoid during a race?
1: Uh, again, this is tough because I think there's a lot of individual um, individuality in that. Um, I think every athlete has a unique body and a unique skill set that, um, sometimes they can get away with things that other people can't get away with. So I guess my number one would be comparing yourself to other athletes. Um, I think it's really easy to jump on Strava and be like, Oh, this person did this workout and, Oh, well, this person's also training for a 40 hour race. And I saw them do X, Y, and Z, um, and getting into your head that you should be com- doing the same workouts. Um, but I think understanding your own strengths, understanding your own weaknesses, understanding how your body works. Some athletes can have really high volume and be okay with that. And other athletes, if they try and do high volume work, they just start to have one injury after the next. So a little bit is finding your own personal balance and kind of integrating that strength training um, where you need to spend more time. Are you someone who can get away off a lot of foot miles or is your body going to start to break down? Like, do you need to spend more time on your bike? Because every time you try and ramp up your running, you're starting to get injuries. You know, so I think kind of knowing your own history um, and knowing what works best for your own body and then holding to that and not trying to sway your mind when you see your teammates or people from other teams doing something different, I would say is probably my number one.
0: And, and that's a really good piece of advice you, you brought up right there. As, aside from the idea that comparison is a thief of joy, right? Yes. When you that's, that's a very common saying. But you brought something interesting up is that is that you you have to work hard to know yourself, what food works for you, what exercise works for you. Like and if you look right and left, if everyone's trying something different. You can't say, oh, I'm not doing that. I better start doing that because I'll be like them. That could be a super individualized approach. I'm I not
1: mean, athlete
0: that needs to eat or I'm just a crying mess. Yeah. Yeah. Or I'm the athlete that that. My, what I have learned about myself is, is that my, my, my body, my ability to digest kind of shuts down a little bit late in a race. And the thought of actually eating coming across the finish line is, is almost repulsive to me. I can't go right from walking off the course or being in a transition area and putting food down right away. What is your personal experience been during a race as opposed to solid food in a race more like the gooey stuff. And then like liquid, do you later in races, what do you like to, what do you like to feed yourself?
1: Um, so I'm working on that. I think for the amount of training that I do, one of my, um, one of the things that I could really work on to race a little bit better and perform better is my fueling. And I think I notoriously underfuel. I have a really sensitive GI system, always have. Um, so it's been tricky for me to work with that and finding out what works and what doesn't work. So I'd say I haven't fully nailed that down Um, this past year I had knee surgery, so I've been out of racing for about a year now. And in that, um, as I'm ramping up my running, currently training for a 50 K, I've been playing more with the liquid nutrition. Um, specifically I tried, um, I'm doing, uh, what's called precision fuel. I recently started, I think it's a little bit more liquid based than the average gel or goo. And I'm finding that it works very well for me. So I'm kind of excited and interested to see as I transition to the longer things. You know, that's fine for going out and running for three or four hours. I'm not so sure how I'm going to feel for 24 hours. Um, So I think it'll probably be a mix of using more of that, but then also mix up some real food.
0: What is your take on sleep?
1: Definitely more sleep. I think right now a lot of research is really honing in that sleep is um, super important, particularly for athletes. And again, this all depends how much do you sleep you need depends on a little bit on on yourself personally. It also depends on, are you more of an elite athlete where you're out there for hours a day, really, you know, grinding it, or, you know, are you more our average adventure racer who has a full-time job and is also racing. Um, But that being said, you know, it's like when life gets busy, when we're stressed at work, a lot of us look to sports to make ourselves feel better. You know, I know when I have a really stressful day, it feels so great to get out there and go for a run and just kind of lose yourself in your run and get those endorphins pumping and feel better. Um, But sometimes when our life is really stressful and really busy, what we should be doing is spending a little bit more time sleeping and maybe doing a little bit less intense workouts.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up, right? That sometimes the thing that we use to lower our stress levels increases our stress levels because mm-hmm. we don't recover via sleep and so you get into that 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 devil's cycle.
1: Yeah. Where it's like you don't
0: you don't sleep enough, you eat poorly and you and and I found myself too and this is and this might be a good topic for us to talk about going into the holiday season next year. I really struggle with between Thanksgiving and Christmas treating that as a as an off season to let your body recover but then having the late nights the holidays all of the the, the the sweets and the food that goes along with that that what was meant to be a restful period actually became a stressful period.
1: And when I first started um, as a physical therapist and I started working with endurance athletes, I think it was really easy to be like, oh, well, you're not doing enough. Let's let's add, you know, you need to start going to the gym. You need to start strengthening. You need to do all of your stretching. You need to do your foam rolling. And it's like the reality is, is that most of us already have too much on our plates. Um, And sometimes it's a little bit about looking at our overall stress levels and deciding when is a workout appropriate or not, or when do we need to be taking away and of adding to. Um, so whether that's, hey, I know that foam rolling is beneficial and I really made this commitment to myself that I'm going to stretch a little bit more, but I'm exhausted. So I'm going to go to sleep tonight instead. That's probably the better choice than spending another half hour, you know, being up and, trying to do more and more than we absolutely need to do.
0: I want to mention a piece of practical advice that we have here that I want to kind of review what you talked about here for, for the listener. So the idea of a simple physical therapy kit, if someone is home and if they want to take positive actions as want to help themselves recover, what should they have? What should they have around? What should they be doing? And and I'll preface this, the strategy I use is that if I'm watching TV, when it goes to commercial, I take that two and a half minutes and I do <laughs> I use the, the commercial time as my personal stretch time and then I go back onto the couch when the show comes back on. That's how I kind mm-hmm. of trick myself and myself into doing that. Mm-hmm. So what, what's the simple PT kit people should have at home?
1: Um, I think the simplest things that people could have is some kind of massage tool. Um, the cheapest ones for those are gonna be a foam roller, or some sort of massage ball. There's one called the orb. It's like a five inch diameter, $20 ball. And it's basically a foam roll and a ball size. So you could use that. And that can be beneficial more to get like your glutes or your hip than a regular foam roller, or even of a cross ball. So none of those objects have to cost a lot of money. Certainly there are other variations of them. There's all kinds of trigger point balls and various foam roller densities. And you can go from spending... 10 to $15, all the way up to probably $75, $100 for any of those. I think just getting something that you like, different people have different tolerances to different pressures. So understanding like, hey, I'm someone who really likes that firm higher density versus someone who doesn't like that. So whatever is your comfort level for that. So a massage ball or foam roller, I think is most important. And I think often doing that self-massage can be a little bit more beneficial than just static stretching. Um, So in terms of impacting our muscles, keeping them pliable to enable proper range of motion, that could be really beneficial. The other thing that I'd have in my toolkit is some sort of resistance band. They sell a lot of like the thick cloth bands now. You can buy a packet of them for 20 bucks on Amazon. Um, And those are really helpful for doing some various strengthening for your hips and your legs. You can do a pretty solid routine. And so we talked a little bit about how strengthening is really important for athletes. So I'd say that's one of my go-to items. Another go-to item would be a couple of kettlebells or a couple of dumbbells. And, you know, you don't want to get them super light because you do want to feel challenged by whatever strengthening exercise you're doing. You know, you want to be able to do some sets where you're like, okay, at the end of this, I was pretty tired. I think as endurance runner, endurance athletes, sometimes we fall into the trap of what we call endurance lifting, where it's like, oh, I should do like super high reps of really low weight. We use that in the rehabilitation model for acute injuries to allow tendon adaptation. But after that, you to get stronger, you need to be lifting heavier weights. So having a handful of things in your house, you can be creative. If you don't want to go out and buy weights, some people use cinder blocks. Um, some people use heavy jugs of, um, like they take their laundry detergent and pour sand or something. So you can be creative with that. Um, but those three things are probably my most important in a go-to like home PT kit.
0: So uh, I've been keeping a rough list during our conversation here of the, the points that we want to hit. So I'm going to share them back with you and let me know if we left something out here. Well, first things first, you talk about the idea of sleep, that sleep as, as you get older and sleep as you, as you, it's completely, you have to look at sleep as a recovery tool and not as being lazy that when you sleep better, you sleep more, you're better. Quick question. Caffeine intake. What's been your experience with that? Do you avoid caffeine? Do you have a cup of coffee in the morning? Do you do you drink it all day?
1: Um, again, I think there's different research on caffeine. I am not the great person to ask about this because I enjoy caffeine a little bit too much. I am trying, I've been really trying hard recently to limit myself to a cup of coffee in the morning. And then um, in the afternoon, sometimes I'll do a half-calf or a decaf coffee. So again, I think there's a lot of individuality with that. There's different genes um, that make people more caffeine sensitive than others so part of that is like again finding what works best for you
0: yeah i'm a weekend coffee drinker so during the week monday to friday for the most part i drink decaf remember it's decaf it's not uncaf a little bit in there yeah. and then on saturday and sunday that's when i i have the, the coffee and the reason being is is that i start early at my job after training in the morning if i have caffeine too early if i have caffeine too early coffee i just made a word up if i have caffeine too early by about 11 o'clock in the morning i'll put my head on the desk Gotcha. And, a, and a really good advice I heard once about, about caffeine was in ca- with caffeine, you're stealing future energy. And I thought it was a nice way to look at it, but I hear you. And, it, yeah. the, and I also find too, obviously there's a connection between caffeine and sleep and and are, is your body rested and like going into it. So we mentioned sleep there. Weight training is important. As you get older, your bones, get more porous that they, they, you need that you begin to, after your thirties and forties, muscle mass, bone density. And I think that the research is pretty clear on that, that, as you age, if you keep a consistent plan going, you're 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 increasing your odds to get older, right? As opposed to not getting older, which is what we don't want to end up there. Um, and on top of that, too, you're increasing your odds to avoid injury. But you got to be careful though, because like you were saying, you could lift yourself into an injury if you're not careful.
1: Yep. Yep. So again, anytime you start something new, kind of being very gradual with your increases and not overloading it um too quickly to yeah. prevent injuries. And that
0: gradual thing is tougher adventure racers, right? Because if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing, right? You know, you know.
1: Absolutely, and I think I mean I think that's a harder thing about as we get older. You know, we're used to having bodies where it's like we can really push the gamut and get away with it. But as we get older, our brain's like, yeah, we can still do this, and our body's like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I am definitely guilty of that myself. And and I think part of the hard part of being an adventure racer is that we don't always know what our races are going to entail. You know, so it's like, if you're signing up for an Ironman again, or a marathon, I keep using those as examples because those are more about speed and you know very much what you're in for, you know, the exact distance, you can look up the elevation change on the course and you know how to train for those events and adventure racing. Like I've had races where I'm like, okay, I kind of know the standard breakdown. Oftentimes in a 24 to 30 hour race, you're looking at about, you know, 20 miles of paddling, approximately 20 to 30 miles on foot. And then about 60 miles on bike is kind of a standard breakdown I've noticed over the years, but I've gotten to races and it's been like, okay, we're going to spend 40 or 50 miles on foot. And it's like, oh, well I haven't trained for that. You know, so I, I do think that that's part of the sport and that we do have to have these bodies that are really strong to be resilient against when we come across that. Cause we can't always predict exactly what we're training for.
0: And I think that's a that's a delightful side effect of being an adventure racer, the idea. And I think there's a spillover effect into your your atom racing life. The fact that we we involuntarily do a sport that we walk into an unknown situation, expect to manage it, is a great metaphor for how we live our lives, right? Because any any day you turn around, something could be going upside down and you have to figure it out. So I think you're you're spot on there. I mean, we haven't even talked about it, and we let's not get into it too deeply because this is ours. Foot care. We haven't even yeah. touched on foot care and, and you know, the idea of that, and that'll probably future episode. We'll talk about that a little bit because feet just get chewed up during adventure racing and nothing is sadder than someone who is fit and strong and ready and they just don't take care of their feet.
1: Yeah, for sure. I've seen, you know, again, I've been doing uh outpatient orthopedics for almost 17 years. I've worked with a lot of feet. I've worked with a lot of feet that are post-operative um, feet that can't, with people that like maybe have some kind of disease where their feet are impacted and they can't really care for their feet by far the gnarliest feet I've ever seen are volunteering in the middle of um, endless mountains. (laughs) People coming into the, you know, coming in to the checkpoints and just their feet are just a mess.
0: Yeah. It's a little shout out to our friend, (laughs) Jesse Tubb. (laughs) (laughs) That's said, yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> we know you're out there jesse and you're listening but we still but your feet, but your feet do heal so we, we know that um and so we mentioned the idea of knowing your body we talked about that and the idea of um idea of not comparing too. that it's it's one thing to, to look at a fellow racers activities and their decisions and how they grow as a racer but realizing that very often is individual specific
1: yeah Definitely. I mean, that's, that's part of the fun of the sport, right? It is a team sport. So more minds together, more different types of bodies together. Like absolutely. You can come up with some great training plans and days and adventures, Brian. I know you and Jim are always on these epic adventures together. Um, and, and that's part of the fun of this type of racing, but it's also kind of knowing when you should back off a little bit and not just be doing it just because somebody else is.
0: Exactly. And I agree with you. And I think that it's, I, I think you're right on there. And this is for the, the checkpoint episode about the psychology, the psychological nature of this, the idea that the um, your your adventure racing career will be much less joyful if you're constantly looking to beat somebody else. The biggest opponent is yourself by a mile. That's what you have to worry about. And after that, it's all its if you if you catch the next person, so be it. But if you're going out there to go beat that person into the ground on the other team. Now, keep in mind, this is for the citizen racer. You know, you go into a world championships. Those teams want to kill each other. That's OK. That's the that's the, that's at that level. That's the pointy end of the spear. But for the citizen racer, folks who are PTs, folks who, who work in education like I do, you, you can't just be looking to knock somebody off the podium every single time. It's a it's a your, your exit will be quick from the sport.
1: Yeah, and I really even think, like, for the top racers, um, I just finished reading a great book um, by Adam Grant called Unlock Your Hidden Potential. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is about how our super competitive people, they they build their own internal games, you know, and everything becomes this game to them. And it's not necessarily about being uber competitive and just beating the other person. But, you know, how can we play a game of ourselves to keep ourselves going? Because ultimately, you don't have control. It's not a sport where you have control over your opponents. You know, it's not like... You are in a sport where there's a defense and an offense and your ability to defend can help. It's like you just got to keep moving yourself forward as best as you can, you and your team. And the only way to do that is to to find some way to make it a game to kind of keep it keep it going.
0: Right. Right. Which is the interesting part of that, because when you're in a, a, a triathlon or a marathon, we, we, you have the experience of the other person around you the entire time run a course and you see people ahead of you and behind you where in adventure racing you don't have that like you may see teams in transition areas may see lights at night but you don't know if they skipped a checkpoint or if they're ahead of you or behind you so you so your the internal motivation has to drive you not the external challenge
1: yeah absolutely
0: you've been very kind with your time karen very knowledgeable is there anything as you look over your notes and you thought about this interview today and the conversation we're going to have that I, that i i forget to bring up something that you thought would be really important or something that you want to emphasize as we close out?
1: I think the general concepts that we went over today about gradual increases is one of the most important things. Um, We talked a little bit about that in regards to how much we're doing in terms of volume, but also intensity. I would say that intensity is often what gets us into trouble. So being more careful with your ramp ups and intensity, um, even more so than the volume, is a big part of staying injury-free. I think another thing is really taking the time to warm up. Uh, when I was 20, I could easily just jump out the door and go for a run. As I'm getting older, you know, taking that time to make sure that you're really warmed up before you go out there to prevent injuries. As we get older, our calves in particular and our Achilles tend to be more at risk for injuries. So having that warm-up time can pre- prevent that tears and those things that are going to set us back. Um, so if you want to keep going... Take care,
4: everybody.
0: Well, there you have it, folks. Episode one of The Checkpoint, presented by the United States Adventure Racing Association. Thank you to Kevin, Brian, and Karen for coming on to the show. Thank you to Brent for his interviews from a distance. Great job there, Brent. You have a future in podcasting. Be sure to check out the USARA website at usara.com for all things United States Adventure Racing. We're delighted you joined us for this episode of The Checkpoint. Keep training, keep racing, and we'll see you soon. Go get them.